0: For me, the motto has always been just show up. I realized, um, be it whatever part of your, be it waking up early in the morning and going for your workout, or be it going for, a, for an evening out with your girlfriend, whatever it is, just show up. Uh, and that actually makes a huge amount of difference.
1: Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Grit, a show about persevering and betting on your dreams. I am Aki Vora, and in this show I have conversations with some incredible Indians who have gone against the grain and are catalyzing change in India. On today's episode, I interview Arunima Patel, one of the founders of iGenetic Diagnostics, India's fastest growing pathology lab. In addition to the standard menu of microbiology tests, Arunima's company specializes in molecular testing and genetic sequencing. Molecular testing drastically reduces the turnaround time for test results for life-threatening diseases, allowing patients to begin treatment quicker. Testing using genetic sequencing provides doctors valuable information to treat patients, especially those battling cancer, by giving them targeted treatment that minimizes side effects. Not only is a company democratizing healthcare in India by expanding to tier two and three cities and by making diagnostics more accessible and affordable, It is also aiding India's fight against coronavirus. iGenetic developed a COVID test in January, and their team has since been tirelessly running their labs to provide quick and accurate results. Arunima took time out to tell me about how she left her job in private equity to start a pathology lab, and how telemedicine may revolutionize our healthcare system. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us a lot. You can also follow us along on Instagram at Um, So I just wanted to start it off by saying thank you so much for taking time out to um, come on the podcast. And I'm really grateful because most of our listeners voted that their top favorite um, or the industry that they're most interested in right now is healthcare. So, I'm really excited to have you on and hear about all the amazing things that your company has been doing.
0: Um, okay. Thank you, Akansha. Look forward to talking to you.
1: Um, so, I thought we could start off um, with you explaining what iGenetic actually does. So, I had a chance to read up a little bit about the incredible things you guys do with molecular biology and testing and expediting testing and making it more accessible for people with more severe illnesses. Um, and more specialized testing. But I thought it would be really helpful for our listeners to understand from you what exactly your company does and how it's catalyzing change in India.
0: So um, iGenetic was incorporated uh, in 2013. We uh, were uh, commercially operational in 2015. Took us about a year to build a lab. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of what we do, uh, there are two specific areas that we work in. We work in the area of uh, ensuring that um, right diagnostics uh, services are available uh, in the tier two and tier three towns in India. We started this um, uh, penetration uh, in the western region first. So we have taken um, our services to places like Kolapur, Nashik, Nagpur, Indore. Places like these, there is a lot of demand because there are good hospitals and good uh, doctors who are there, but diagnostics per se is not available in these places. A good quality diagnostics is not available. So wherever we go, uh, we are maybe uh, one or two chains who are present in these these cities. So our idea is that um, uh, uh, tier two and tier three cities need to have um, good quality diagnostics available. Because diagnosis is the first step before which a doctor um, starts prescribing um, the medication based on uh, based on uh, the the proper diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So we provide that in in the tier two and tier three cities. The second area where we specialize in is uh, infection diagnosis. Actually, um, today everybody perhaps knows uh, what real time PCR is. Um, uh, six months back, that wasn't the scenario. In fact. Um, uh, a lot of doctors that we would interact with perhaps would not know the advantages that a real-time PCR would bring to the table. We have been doing infection uh, diagnosis using real-time PCR for last five years, and we have been talking about it across the country. Uh, some of this innovation is um, designed by us. In fact, we have our own uh, homegrown uh, R&D uh, capability, which has designed these, uh, these tests, and they have, uh, the patent have been filed for these. Uh, what that means is that your traditional um, ways of diagnosing an infection typically takes three to five days. Uh, it's uh, microbiology, and uh, it's considered the gold standard across the world. But given the, the number of days it takes for a proper diagnosis uh, to come, uh, the clinician uh, in the initial um, stages is treating the person based on their judgment, mm-hmm. which is where we come in. Uh, we provide diagnosis. Uh, our processing time is, is eight hours, so we pick up a sample from uh, let's say Chennai today and uh, within 24 hours we are able to uh, provide uh, the diagnosis on the infection and we cover more than, we have more than 110 uh, pathogens, so various bacterias, um, viruses, fungus, uh, we diagnose those. In fact, uh, we were diagnosing NEPA even before uh, uh, people got to know what NEPA was. It was part of our panel. Uh, we have um, in January, we developed our test for uh, uh, diagnosing um, COVID. Mm-hmm. And we applied for uh, uh, permission with the regulatory um, authorities in the country in, uh, in February. We finally got approval in March uh, to do the testing ourselves. Um, And some of these innovation um, isn't available across the world, if you see. Um, uh, Infection has remained uh, a big issue in the developing countries, not so much uh, in the developed countries. And that's where uh, uh, developing countries, the innovation revolved around cancer. Um, Hence, infection took a backseat. But now, uh, after COVID and after SARS and after all of these pandemics, uh, infection diagnosis is becoming uh, big across the world.
1: so that's where iGenetic plays. Interesting. And you guys also do, I read that you guys do a lot of testing in terms of, you said so you mentioned cancer and also fertility um, and being able to target cancer. So doctors are better able to ta- target their cancer treatment. Is that, is that correct?
0: So cancer, yes, cancer is a very difficult um, diagnosis per se, um, because uh, there are a lot of mutations um, Um, which can, so maybe there are 50 types of breast cancers. Um, For a lay person, uh, it's very difficult to understand. Um, So you have to look at genetic level. You have to look at genetic mutations uh, uh, and uh, uh, that's when a proper targeted therapy can be given to the person. And that's where uh, companies such as us uh, come into picture because we uh, we provide uh, that genetic mutation data to the clinicians and for them to act And cancer does get mutated over a period of time, so one has to keep monitoring it.
1: So I read that you started off as an electronics and communication engineer, and then you ended up going to IIM. So I was hoping you could share a little bit about your journey from engineering to finance and then finally to healthcare.
0: So if you asked me when I was in fourth grade what I wanted to become, my answer would remain the same. I wanted to become a doctor. And I wanted to become a doctor till uh, till my eleventh standard. Actually, uh, I was um, I loved maths and I loved physics. And I don't know why I wanted to become a doctor at that age. Uh, but um, you know, your your grooming has always been.
1: help okay, you become a
0: doctor because that's a profession respect. Uh, so till my eleventh standard, in fact, I, I had both biology as well as maths in my uh, in my eleventh choice of subject. And uh, then I realized in the 12th standard that uh, look biology is something that just does not excite me at all. And uh, math is something I was not ready to let go, even at that point. So I chose engineering and uh, it just happened that I, um, so um, after engineering, a uh, national course of career progression, uh, straight away went to IIM uh, my uh, for my management. There, I was fascinated by uh, finance and uh, investment banking. Again, to do with maths. Again, something uh, I really enjoyed. um, And got into private equity afterwards. Um, And uh, in six years career uh, in private equity, um, I was looking after healthcare as a portfolio. So uh, my network got developed into healthcare. And then I realized that there is a potential. In fact, this whole idea of investing in diagnosis diagnostic change at that time was pretty hot remains hot even now and um, I remember in 2012 I was looking at uh, creating something like this while being in my private equity job Um, and um, when my daughter was born afterwards I left the company and then decided to do this on my own so that's how I got into healthcare uh, 360 degrees I would say
1: yeah that's so amazing but I I really like, and I wish there was more like that in that I kept all my doors open. I studied economics and I feel sometimes like I have this one career path. Um, at least that's how it seems right now, but it's really, it's really comforting to know that you can always switch and do something different.
0: Um, oh yeah, I know, I mean, especially after, after MBA, right? You would, um, and um, there's so much of peer pressure that you have to get an banking job and that's the, that's the thing and that's the only career one should aspire for. Um, I did six years of private equity. Now, do I want to go back into doing private equity? Perhaps no. Uh, I found my calling. Uh, Being an entrepreneur, I I found my calling. This is what excites me. Um, So, yes, uh, there is no one path that um, we, especially uh, in school, uh, especially people who don't have uh, enough work experience. I had nothing when I went into IMA. Uh, I had no work experience. So... um, uh, uh, at that point you feel that okay career is you know your career gets defined from today and that's a path that you'll take and you'll be forever there i have batchmates who started off uh, uh, initially in cafe coffee Day. in fact one of my closest friends and today he's a banker so today he's into investment banking <laughs> um, we passed out in 2002 that was right after um, uh, uh, the recession so right at the at the at the peak of recession so we all went uh, different ways and then we found
1: our calling eventually. So as you started to realize that the diagnostic space, um, there was a gap in the space and you wanted to enter and perhaps disrupt in some ways and fill that gap, but as someone who had no idea about, presumably you had no idea about actually how do you go about building a test, um, and starting a lab might require a lot of funding probably in terms of infrastructure and stuff. So. How did that go in terms of having that idea in your head and then saying, okay, I'm going to quit my job and start building this company? Can you walk us through a little bit of that step by step? Um,
0: it started off, and I remember um, it started off uh, with a lot of uh, fear actually, uh, because you rightfully said, right, it's a very technical field. I have no idea. I only know 30,000 feet, there is a potential, there is growth, there is you can build one one more chain. Um, and that's, that's about it. I, I had met a few CEO at that time, people who were running chain, but there were only three or four chains. in when, when you're talking about 2013, there were not too many companies in the diagnostic space who had reached a certain scale.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I, uh, in fact, uh, got on to LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, found uh, so i whoever uh, i found on linkedin i started meeting them uh, some who were employees at another chain um in fact i found my scientific co-founders who uh, the people who um, brought the scientific know-how on linkedin Uh, It took a lot of persuasiveness in fact one lady i remember dr arjuna krishnan she's a scientific co-founder in the company took me 15 days of nonstop calling at her uh, reception. And every time I was told, and this is, you know, I'm, I was not even going beyond the reception. I was told she's having coffee. I was told she was in a meeting. I was told she was traveling. Uh, so 15 days nonstop calling and ultimately I found uh, I, I could speak with her and I met her and we had, all, uh, we had signed up together um, after maybe, maybe three months um, of, of talking to each other. Uh, Yes, so in initial um, few months were uh, uh, very, uh, you didn't know where you were headed. Um, And uh, it took all my um, um, persuasiveness, perseverance to get up in the morning and just still go and do uh, what I said I will do. It's
1: incredible to think how long how long just a, a cold email on LinkedIn can go. And that's so interesting yes. to me that you met your co-founder, but you said that it took a long time to put your team together and build all of that and all of your perseverance. But how did you talk to yourself in those moments? Because the company still hadn't come together and you were still waking up every morning and finding funding, finding people to join your team. So what were those conversations with yourself like? Do you think you'd make it at that point? Ah. Um, no. A very
0: optimistic person. I never have, uh, and I don't know. I have incredible amount of self belief that uh, one day I will make it. Uh, so that's, I, I guess, for me the motto has always been just show up. I realized, um, be it whatever part of your be it waking up early in the morning and going for your workout, or be it going for a for an evening out with your girlfriend, whatever it is, just show up. Uh, and that actually makes a huge amount of difference I've seen. Um, whenever you're feeling lazy, just get up and just do what you said you will do. And that's, that's exactly how I have been um, uh, living my life all this while. And this has worked for me so far. Um, I, don't, I don't strategize too much. I don't think too much about oh, what will happen. I don't, I, don't see, I don't plan more than maybe a month in, in advance. Um, but what I do is, uh, just take the next step always. Um, and that's worked so far. Yes. There have been a lot of, lot of, uh, times when I felt pretty low, that it's not going to happen. Um, but those times are the ones where you just say, okay, I said, I will do this. So let me do this.
1: Interesting. And so you went from there and you have two other co-founders who are also involved in the business and then you have two medical Um, co-founders per se and so the five of you guys came together and it was that at that point is that when you developed a business plan and started to build your first lab Um, and yes Uh, so first lab
0: uh, in fact I I mean we had no idea how much money will go in Uh, we had a we had an initial estimate and um, we I think ended, ended up spending three times that money uh, ultimately, because we also had to sustain losses for a long, lot of period of time. In fact, now companies finally turn profitable. Um, but you know, initial initial estimates, you sort of uh, you are in that picture that, um, and being an optimist, you say, okay, industry maybe people take uh, players take four, five years to become profitable. I'll become profitable within a year and a half, and you start working from there, and that goal. Because we were expanding also very, very rapidly. Um, that goal took us six years to reach. Um, and um, touch wood, we found good shareholders, we found good investors. Um, That's also because I had the background in private, private equity and that did help me. Uh, a lot of people who had seen me in these six years of working in Actis, in fact, backed me. Uh, so initial monies came from uh, the colleagues uh, and their families. Um, and then it it was our round three when we finally had monies coming from uh, external investors who we hadn't met earlier.
1: Interesting. One of my questions is going to be when you started talking about funding is sometimes obviously you have your own money in it and so you have more than enough skin in the game but then when you're accountable to someone else you also have to um, be responsible and you feel like you have to answer them you said you got very lucky with your investors in terms of you knew all of them personally and they were very supportive of your goals. But sometimes when the company is running in losses for a while, um, someone might come and say, hey, I'm not sure about this strategy. Uh, why are you approaching this this way? So how did you, how were you able to convert their doubts into the same beliefs that you had in the company?
0: Look, and that, that's been happening for the last five years, I would say, just that now the company has uh, turned the corner um for the last six years we've been a- answering those questions um i think a lot of investors uh, what they would want to see uh, in the founders is a certain belief uh, a certain confidence um, um, and that they have thought through the problem per se and then they are they are flexible whenever they need to be these are three of four things But most importantly, I've seen whenever I've spoken with uh, anybody from my investor community, uh, they take uh, comfort in the fact that um, that I'm confident uh, that the company will, uh, will get to the next milestone. Um, And that's the most important thing that people people will want to see Um, you having the belief yourself, uh, it's it's not so much about your skin in the game. Yes, all my personal wealth, all all of, uh, all of my energies have gone into, into building this company. Uh, people respect that. But ultimately, whether I have faith in the company or not is something that's, uh, that's most important for them.
1: That's, that's really interesting. I think that always I'm drawn to people that are very confident and say, okay, this is how it's going to go and lay down the X, Y, Z. So that's... I think being able to build that confidence and having faith in your own dreams is so important. Um, You also mentioned that you guys were rapidly expanding. And so was it, you opened one lab and then was it just like success, success, success from there? And you guys kept going, kept expanding or were there bumps along the way?
0: No, they they have been, we have sunk in a lot of money uh, into... Uh, yeah, um, into building labs and uh, so one of one specific lab actually, uh, wherein uh, we invested heavily. Um, it was state of the art lab, uh, CAP accredited in, in the only, it's the only LA- CAP lab in the whole network, and we ultimately shut it down. Um, and I think that was the right decision for that particular lab. Um, uh, entered into a region uh, which uh, even now I believe is not um, is not something that uh, we would enter into very lightly, very very competitive uh, place, very price sensitive, um, um, and uh, I mean there are to put it mildly there are better places to to expand. Uh, that's my learning after that experience. So yes, we have had several uh, several learning experiences. We have gotten into areas which. Um, Uh, too early, Uh, we took on too many things to do Um, and we uh, we shut it down. Uh, And I'm glad we shut it down when we did. Um, We could have taken those decisions much earlier. As a a startup, uh, you cannot afford to um, spend monies um, experimenting on too many things. And when you inherently believe that one of them will
1: not succeed, you might as well take a decision fast.
0: And that's my learning uh, from those experiences.
1: When you do make a mistake and, and sometimes how does your team come together to, to overcome that? Is there, is there a quick turnaround where you say, okay, we made a mistake and now let's fix it or change something? Or how do you stop yourself from brooding over it and moving on?
0: Uh, it, uh, it's, I would say it depends. Um, Especially if you're working with a few co-founders, uh, that's when it becomes a little difficult because some of them may believe in that idea much more than than you do. Um, so you end up sort of, uh, if there's a single decision maker, then those decisions are right or wrong. You take them much quicker
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, than, uh, than if you have multiple co-founders. Um, Team, a team comes along. Actually, team, if you start sharing, uh, if you are being open with them, if you're being honest with them, if you set a um, milestone that the team has to reach, um, then uh, it becomes transparent for them, the decision that you're making. Um, um, so yes, uh, communication uh, becomes very, very important for the team at that point. Um, they still, you still deal with disgruntlement, you still deal with bitterness you will deal with all of those, uh, especially for people who are let go off at that point. Um, But that's the right thing for your company. Uh, And you take these decisions uh, only thinking about your company. In fact, in a startup, you only think about your company first uh, because majority of the time you're in survival mode.
1: In terms of communicating effectively with co-founders or with your team, What are some pieces of advice or some things that you've learned that have helped you along the way to communicate effectively or negotiate? Um,
0: Uh, So, um, a couple of things there actually. Um, There is no, um, there is, uh, uh, your decisions will always be tentative. There is no sort of, there is no clear that the decision you're taking is the is absolutely 100% the right decision, because then, you know, all all of you will, will arrive at uh, that decision individually. So uh, these are these become very important when it's not clear whether you're taking the right decision or not, uh, especially if you've sunk in a lot of money and that becomes sort of a sunk cost and you want to move on from there. Um, um, in in a partnership, there is nobody who is superior and then there is nobody who is inferior. Uh, so always come from that. Um, whether, whether you are a 10% shareholder versus somebody who is a 50-60% shareholder, um, it's very important uh, to treat everybody on par in these kind of decisions. Um, a second thing that I've learned is um, uh, communicate early rather than actually holding on to... Uh, to these intercessiveness and holding on to these uh, uh, these tensions in the team. Uh, it's it's better to communicate early and you it's better to have it out in the open early on. Um, and be objective. So as much of, um, and uh, there my maths helps, So as much of Excel work that you can do, as much as uh, presentations you can do, it always helps to uh, keep the subjectivity, keep the emotions aside and Just look at plain numbers. Uh, That's helped.
1: In terms of where you guys are right now, how is this a question that I always find really interesting is sometimes it can be you can dream too big and sometimes you can be too conservative. So how do you find that balance together in making sure that you're thinking big, but also not being too aggressive?
0: so i'll give i mean um, i'll give you example of covid itself right um, we took on th- there was work which was a plenty and there was no dearth of uh, work um uh, during this time of for covid testing itself but we had a few principles which were very very clear in our minds one we don't want to do any work uh, which is uh, uh, which has credit involved um, we are a small company, uh, we, have, uh, we don't have deep pockets and we cannot take credit risk. Uh, that's one. Uh, second, we did not want to take on work where we cannot deliver on the service. So uh, in Bombay, uh, a lot of players struggled. They took on a lot of work that uh, they could manage to deliver on. Uh, we have not struggled. In fact, uh, in all of last, uh, we started COVID work from March. Yeah, since then, uh, we have not had challenge in uh, turning uh, turning around our report in time. Uh, we promised 24 24 hours turnaround time. We delivered. There, there may have been one or two instances where we have not been able to do, and that was um, initial days when uh, few lab individuals came positive. Uh, we had to deal with those situations also. Um, but barring that one particular instance, we have not had uh, we have not had operational issues. We have not. Uh, so, uh, because we are in an industry where service is very, very important and we are answerable to the patient whose sample we've taken. This is, uh, you're talking about somebody whose surgery is, is pending because they don't have COVID uh, report. There's somebody whose dialysis is pending. There's somebody who's who's passed away but his body could not be uh, given to the, to the family till COVID report is out. So you can't, um, you cannot, um, uh, you can't, uh, delay these reports. And that was the one basic principle. So we expanded. We expanded gradually. We started off with saying, hey, our capacity is only maybe 150 odd tests. Today, we our capacity is 500 tests mm-hmm. um, a day. So we, uh, we've we gradually ramped up, uh, but never took on uh, more than what we
1: could chew. The second part of the questions that I had was to ask you more about healthcare in India. And in terms of coronavirus, you guys are scaling up testing and doing such an incredible job of making sure that people have access to their test results. And one of the questions that I had, or most of my questions about this, are focused on democratizing healthcare in India. But in terms of me giving access to people in smaller cities or in rural India access to testing for COVID, um, your company or just the general space, how, how is that possible? Like how, how much does the government have to do with this and how much can private healthcare providers help to help to bring these test kits, uh, to rural India and to poorer cities?
0: So, um, in fact, both players have their roles. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, government has done a commendable job, um, initially there was a lot of resistance in terms of not allowing private players to uh, to participate in covid testing in fact we we started with just one lab in pune which was doing covid testing for all of country from there to now we have um, we are doing maybe 2 lakh plus um, real time pcr tests a day so government has done an incredible job in making sure that uh, there are uh, that this testing facility is available across uh, uh, even in the in in rural parts of the country today. Um, uh, where, where, where government machinery help is um, there are a lot of medical colleges across the country. Um, that's where government uh, put in infrastructure. They gave training to these individuals to run COVID tests. And, that was, uh, and that's phenomenally done. Where private players come into picture is taking, taking that uh, much deeper. See, private um, um, uh, labs, what they can do is today, uh, how, how, um, how private labs participate is, I will pick up the sample from, uh, let's say, Sangli. And I will deliver it to Bombay in time. And I will still be able to give you a report uh, within 24, 30 hours. And which is what we are doing, so we are taking uh, we are taking our penetration far deeper into these small interiors um, and bringing the sample uh, to a central point and getting them tested. So both parties
1: play hand in hand. That's interesting. I I always thought that there was a that they were mutually exclusive and the government used one or was responsible for probably one part, and and private sector was. No, this
0: time, this time, government participated very well with private. Actually, in fact, um, Bombay, how BMC um, worked with private players, but BMC did not have enough capacities uh, in the government setup, so they um, they gave work to private players. Um, in fact, uh, I would say half of the work that private players
1: do comes from BMC. That's that's amazing, um, and it's great to hear. Everything coming together, especially from someone who's coming inside um, to hear that that the government is doing a commendable job and that private players are able to integrate successfully to um, deploy COVID testing and make sure it's accessible um, and is penetrating to to different parts of India. And that was my second question. Was more about general healthcare, even aside like aside from COVID. You mentioned in the beginning that diagnosis is the first step right once you diagnose someone only then can you actually provide them with the correct cure and help them out and so in terms of making healthcare more accessible part of it is making it more affordable so how 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 do you see india's healthcare changing to become more affordable in the poorer areas and what can we do as citizens to help that or catalyze that change
0: uh, one of the things that COVID has brought about, actually, uh, is um, um, this whole tele, um, telemedicine, teleconsult mechanism. And that's incredible, right? You, you, if you go to metros, uh, there are doctors who are fighting for a patient. Um, so there is more and enough capacity in metros. And the same capacity is not available. Uh, and same capacity is needed in a place like Kolapur, for instance, or a Nashik. Um, so, one of the things that is going to happen um, eventually is that uh, people will find uh, ways for bringing this uh, unutilized capacities from Metro and taking that to uh, treat a patient in Nashik or Sangli. That's one. Um, second thing, um, uh, in terms of affordability, and our experience has been uh, that there are patients who are ready to pay everywhere. Uh, in fact, they spend much more amount uh, traveling from an interior place to come to Bombay, get hospitalized here, uh, along with their attendants who stay in a in a hotel. So they it's uh, they have money. Um, there is affordability even in interiors. You mm-hmm. have to as a private player how we how we deal with it. We uh, balance it out so we um, we offer both kinds so we offer very good service um, at a little cheaper rate than uh, uh, than uh, what metro uh, metro would, uh, uh, would pay um, so um, and we we allow them to get diagnosed uh, at uh, at the doorstep um, So they don't have to travel for unnecessary um, treatments and procedures. If it can be treated locally, it gets treated locally. Um, Now doctors have also started to travel and that that happened. That shift happened uh, over the last two years where doctors are actually going and having outreach clinics. Uh, There are hospitals which are doing outreach clinics in, in, in the interiors. So it's, uh, it's important to facilitate that infrastructure um, uh, creation and um, there, are, uh, there are entrepreneurs in these, these part of towns who are ready to uh, put, up the, put up the facility, who are ready to put up the infrastructure. They need participation from uh, doctors and other players from metros to come and help them uh, treat the patient uh, in, in these places. And that's something that we have to start opening our eyes to. Um, we have, doctors have to see that there is potential in these places. As diagnostics, we have seen that there is potential. In fact, our, our entire growth depends on uh, tier two, tier three. We don't, um, we don't uh, open labs in big towns. Um, we open more labs in tier two and tier three towns. Mm-hmm. So more and more uh, private uh, players also will see that there is so much more potential in, in, in these places.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely hopeful because healthcare is something that everyone needs and it requires, I I think that our country requires healthcare to be more productive. Even as someone who studies economics, if you're not healthy, then your productivity in the labor market is severely compromised. Um, And then your ability to save and contribute to your family as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.